The Green Front with Betsy Rosenberg, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. on the Progressive Radio Network. Welcome to this edition of the Green Front. It is kind of a holiday edition. We'll be talking about how to reduce your footprint as we get into all the uh, critical mass time uh, leading up to Christmas and New Year's. There's lots of eating going on, lots of consumption of all kinds, lots of waste. Our waste goes up about 25% and our waistlines as well, perhaps this time of year. We're going to talk to the founder of a great company called To Go Where, and they will tell you how to keep plastic out of our oceans and landfills, give the earth a present, the planet a present this holiday season. Uh, but first, we're going to get uh, quite serious and talk about really some good news that came out of Cancun. At least it's better than the bleak news or no news that came out of Copenhagen, which of course turned to uh, Nopenhagen. Uh, but Cancun, uh, there has been a compromise in the UN climate talks, and uh, we're going to check with my favorite climate expert and blogger, that is Joseph Rome. He writes Climate Progress at climateprogress.org. If you don't know about it, uh, I'll warn you, it's addictive, it's comprehensive, and uh, you, will, you will be reading it every day, and I don't know how he has time to write it all because I can barely keep up with reading it, but it is uh, really the best source, uh, truly, on cl- all kinds of climate issues and development. So welcome to the Green Front, Joe. Uh, thanks for having me. So I know you were not in Cancun um, directly, but you certainly, if I know you, were monitoring developments very closely and wanted to get your sense of what happened, what didn't happen. Sounds like there was, once again, an 11th hour agreement of some sort, if nothing else, that um, was something that kind of held in place a little of what was uh, accomplished, sort of, in Copenhagen. If nothing else, it, it saved face for the U.N. climate uh, conference uh, process. Uh, that's my take on it so far, but would like to, uh, if you will, drill down and, and get your sense of, you know, what happened not only in terms of outcomes but behind the scenes, as as I'm sure you have sources who have uh, debriefed you. Sure. Well, we actually had uh, the, the Center for American Progress had uh, people who uh, who went to Cancun and and. Uh... Uh, the interesting thing is actually much of it is broadcast, so anybody can actually watch uh, the plenary sessions, um, although a lot of the action happens behind the scenes. So I hear. Um, the basic thing is that every year the, the nations of the world uh, get together for what's called the Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change uh, in an effort to, uh, you know, negotiate... Uh, an agreement or parts of an agreement that will avert uh, what's called dangerous anthropogenic uh, climate change. Uh, uh, human emissions are changing, warming the planet and changing the climate, and, and on our current path uh, of emissions, uh, the impacts are going to be pretty extreme. So uh, last year was Copenhagen, which I did attend, um, and... At the 11th hour, President Obama came in, and he he made a a, a deal between many of the key emitters. And uh, at the end of that conference, however, the the 
Nazis did not unanimously agree, and, and one of the biggest problems with this whole process is that you need unanimous consent of like 170-odd nations. <laughs> is that even possible? Well, imagine how much we get done in the... It, it, we get very little done uh, in the Senate of the United States, which only requires a 60% supermajority. Imagine how much we'd get done if every single person had to agree on everything. Exactly, and they're not even issue, dealing with issues as complex and difficult as climate change. As we know, the Senate dropped the ball on legislation altogether just took a pass on it, other than maybe health care reform. That also was, uh, you know, very complex and... Um, Oh, challenging. Of course, uh, that took up a lot of bandwidth the first two years of Obama's administration. So, yes, I mean, this whole process, I think, is being called into question. You know, how is it possible to reach consensus on something so, you know, complex with so many different um, interests and situations in terms of the developed countries, the developing countries? Um, and then it, se it seems like herding cats. Just when you get some agreement um, and you don't get full agreement, then the ones who offered the initial agreement start backing away. Uh, it must be a giant undertaking. Yes, and, and uh, compounded by the original agreement, this was all launched back in Rio de Janeiro uh, in uh, 1992, uh, with the understanding that the rich countries who had gotten rich generating the vast majority of the pollution would act first. Uh, back then in 1992, one could hardly have envisioned that China would be the biggest emitter. And, and they the just fact, surpassed the U.S., of course. Us. They surpassed the U.S. a couple of years ago, and they continue. The U.S. emissions have been actually declined in the last few years, but, uh, you know, we're a kind of mature industrial country. The, the rapidly growing economy of China and India, but mostly China, is responsible for, for most of the emissions growth. Now, just before you go on, Joe, did we decline, decrease a little bit because of the recession, or did it have nothing to do with that? Are we actually making progress? Uh, the United States declined uh, since 2005, about half uh, due to the recession, uh, partly due to renewable energy standards that states have been adopting, and also in a large part is low natural gas prices. Um, so that as the economy slowed, uh, a lot of coal was uh, plants were taken offline um, because gas just turned out to be cheaper to to keep running. And will they stay offline those coal plants that were taken off? Uh, well, that is a very good question. I think uh, you know we're we're still in a slow economic growth period. So I think what you're going to see is we're not going to build very many new coal plants and. Um, uh, I think particularly if the Obama, you know, EPA enforces, uh, you know, new regulations on mercury uh, and other pollutants, then uh, I think you will probably see a decline in coal, steady, slow but steady decline in coal generation um, over the next um, few years. Well, that is some good news. And then, of course, back to uh, the Cancun conference. It seems like there was some agreement on the issues of mitigation and adaptation, uh, but not necessarily going far enough in terms of just overall commitments to reducing emissions from each country. Um, is that your understanding? Yeah, well, what, yeah, the way to look at it is this. What, what, I mean, uh, Cancun uh, basically... Uh, the nations of the world did all sign off, essentially unanimously. There were a couple 
uh, led by Bolivia. Uh, who Bolivia did, was the renegade. <laughs> Bolivia was the renegade, but Mexico, which chaired this, kind of gaveled it through and and did something which, frankly, the the, the Danes could have done in Copenhagen, which is just sort of say we're all in agreement and you know we're moving on. I understand um, Mexicans of. Foreign Minister, Mexico's Foreign Minister, Patricia Espinosa, was something of a rock star. She kind of took the whip in hand and, and made everybody continue to work and work hard and get specific. Yes, and Mexico, it should be said, has really been uh, a, a leader in, in uh, emissions reduction plans, uh, in part because they understand they are going to hit get hit very hard by climate change um, along their coasts and, and because the interior part of this country, their country is going to dry out like the U.S. Southwest will. Not to uh, mention they have serious just pollution uh, alone, particulate pollution. Indeed, Mexico absolutely. City being the most polluted city, I believe, in the world, or at least it was last time I heard. So, so uh, the, the Cancun Agreements, which is what this is being called, uh, they... Basically, uh, 80 countries, uh, including all the major economies, have agreed to either targets or actions. And uh, it just doesn't have the force of law in the sense that there's no, you know, no, no, there's no way of of enforcing this except in the court of world opinion, which which counts a great deal. So I, I think that. Uh, and of course, the United, this includes the U.S. commitment made by President uh, Obama in the days leading up to Copenhagen a year ago, which is that we would have a 17% reduction from uh, uh, by by 2020, which is going to be very hard for us to do, uh, given the the many global warming deniers uh, in Congress. Yeah, we have to look at what's going on or not going on in our country. We've talked about that a little bit. But uh, did you hear much about the U.S. representative and, and any um, choice comments that came out of uh, our delegation in Cancun? Well, our delegation has uh, been uh, – uh, I, I think they're relatively happy with with the outcome. I think that, that uh, you know, they're in an awkward position because, you know, they can't really deliver on their commitment. At the same time, the U.S. Uh, doesn't really like this process of where every country in the world can veto collective action. Um, so, now the good news is we did get a you know movement on the forestry deal, the forestry agreement, uh, uh, and uh, reducing deforestation and forest degradation, which is called Red R E D D. Right. And um, we did get movement on that, um, and we did get movement on uh, this climate fund, uh, just an agreement that it would there would be a climate fund, and uh, but it's a hundred billion dollars, uh, and where the money will come from has not been, you know, determined yet. Oh, there's that detail. Um, but uh, by and large, g- given that. That, that most people were thinking this would be a pretty big failure, uh, everybody is pretty happy uh, with with the outcome. I mean, they really couldn't come home empty-handed, could they, uh, without, you know, then an admission that, you know, we just can't do it. And I think that's sort of untenable given the uh, rate of climate 
decline. Yeah, no, and I think um, uh, other than a few countries, everybody definitely wants to to um, to see things move forward. The difficult part is that um, you know China, the United States has is is stuck with having can only do what. Uh, you can get 60 senators to agree to, which isn't bloody much. And Especially now with the, uh, the makeup of the uh, Congress in the election. Indeed. And, and, and uh, you know, one has to be, you have to be frank, there's not much that's going to happen. Uh, uh, certainly not as long as the House of Representatives is, is controlled by uh, uh, people who also deny the reality of climate science. Um, and then you have China, which, which although it is becoming the leader in clean energy and really <clears throat> out-investing us and the rest of the world, it also continues to build coal plants um, at, a, at a rate which is, which is really, uh, I must say, immoral. It's, it's, it's what, they're, what they're doing. China is well aware that what they're doing is grotesquely unsustainable, and and um, uh, and yet they keep building these coal plants. How are they able to get away with that, or is no one going to be able to tame you know the the, the red giant, if you will? I, I mean, it's a little scary how much weight they have, and you know, with population and consumption trends there, um, they scare me almost as much as our country does. Yeah. Well, they get away with it because they they have been able. To hide behind um, the United States is in action for you know eight years under Bush and Cheney. Um, yeah, India and China always saying we're not going to do it till the U.S. does it, and then you know a few years ago when um, Bush was still in office, I understand India and China came to the table. Can't remember which conference this was exactly, and um, then the U.S. wouldn't play. It's again that herding cat mentality, which we cannot continue to. You know, allow. Yeah, well, and it's it's uh, 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 you know it's a great uh, tragedy that that uh, we did not get a climate bill this year, and and um, there are many causes. Uh, uh, you know, the obstructing uh, uh, Republicans in the Senate, in particular, and I think the failure of the media to communicate clearly uh, what the science. Uh, and scientists have been saying, and, and uh, uh, yes. President Obama himself, who who really did not um, push hard publicly, and and I think behind the scenes for a deal. So um, you know that means we're given a free pass to the Chinese uh, for a number of years, and and indeed a lot. You know they've stepped up to the plate now and are trying to seem uh, like they're more reasonable than they are. And um, uh, they're going to have a lot of money, <clears throat> which always makes it easier to get countries to agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, they can invest in countries and sign deals for minerals and, uh, you know, do foreign aid. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're going to be in this dynamic uh, for several more years. Before we go on to the media, your favorite topic and mine, uh, and the way it covers or doesn't cover climate change uh, issues, let's just, you know, take a moment to talk about Bolivia. When I heard Bolivia was a renegade in Cancun talks, at least I was, I was pleased to see that they're saying this doesn't go far enough. So even though it's good that one country cannot hold up the entire works, 
um, you know, good for the ambassador there. I believe his last name is Sol- Solon or Solon for, you know, I think standing up and saying this isn't going to do it. Um, and at least that was that went down on the record. I'm glad that they, you know, overcame that. Yeah, resistance. Yeah, well, um, the the um, look, the poor countries are going to suffer the most. Well, I, I shouldn't say they're going to suffer the most. The poor countries will suffer to the same degree that everyone else suffers. It's just that they're poor and less able to adapt, spend money to adapt. Uh, or to deal with it, and, and of course they're living, uh, many people are living a much more marginal existence, much more dependent on agriculture, and therefore much more dependent on uh, uh, the amount of precipitation and temperature and, and, and things like that. So, yeah, they, these countries are going to suffer uh, uh, greatly, and, and they look at the richest country in the world, the United States, which is also the country responsible cumulatively for the most emissions by far over the past several decades, and yet we're not even willing to spend a tiny fraction of our wealth to avert, you know, pretty, uh, pretty catastrophic impacts uh, in uh, the coming years. And uh, it's only going to get more expensive when we um, get to, you know, mitigation and adaptation or adaptation anyway in response to, you know, I mean, look at you turn on the news this week, um, record storms in the Midwest, record amount of snowfall. Now, of course, uh, the dinosaurs, as I call them, would say, well, global warming, what global warming? We've got freezing weather, tons of snow, Al Gore's a hoax. But, of course, this is exactly the climate, kind of climate instability that climate scientists have been predicting all along. Yeah, well, this year uh, is definitely the setting the record for the most extreme weather events, and um, we have seen uh, devastating flooding. I mean, a fifth of Pakistan was underwater. Um, we had Nashville, which was devastated by a once-in-a-thousand-year rainstorm. Um, many cities on the East Coast were hit by once-in-500-year uh, rainstorms. And uh, Moscow, Russia, was hit by a once-in-a-thousand-year heat wave and drought, which led to wildfires uh, and led the, uh, Russia to ban grain exports. Um, and uh, we've had 18 countries, I think. Let me count them. Three, I think it's 18. Three, uh, uh, 18 or 19 countries that have set the all-time... Uh, no, 19. 19 com- uh, countries have set their all-time hottest temperature mark. Uh, ironically, the 19th was, was Bolivia uh, in October uh, 29th when Bolivia, the mercury temperature hit 116 degrees. Um, so, yeah, this, this is going to be uh, probably the hottest year on record. Uh, and in yeah, fact, it, the years from 2000 to 2009, uh, almost an entire decade now, uh, going on record as uh, probably the warmest. And, and that's a good segue into uh, this whole Wendell Goler Fox News Bill Salmon incident that you have topping your blog today. Uh, this continues to be, I mean, maybe we shouldn't be shocked anymore um, about what comes out of Fox News management. But uh, give me your thoughts on that, and then I'll, I'll tell you a little inside story. Uh, yeah, well, this story is, is you know, uh, kudos to Media Matters, which got uh, a leaked email, which was sent by Fox News Washington managing editor Bill Salmon uh, about 15 minutes after uh, one of their correspondents, Wendell Goler, actually had the nerve to accurately report <laughs> a year ago that 
the 2000-2009, the, the decade of the 2000s was, quote, on track to be the warmest decade on record, which is absolutely undeniable. There's, every single temperature record makes that very clear, and there's just not a lot of you know, argument about this very basic fact. And, Except uh, Fox this, News. This was Fox News, however, and it was right during Copenhagen. So, you know, God forbid uh, the nations of the world take action based on science. So Salmon sent out an email to, you know, the senior producers and, 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 and the staff at Fox News saying, um, you know, the subject line was given the controversy over the veracity of climate change data. Um, we should refrain from asserting that the planet has warmed or cooled in any given period without immediately pointing out that such theories are based upon data that critics have called into question. <laughs> it is not our place as journalists to assert such notions as facts, especially as this debate intensifies. I think that probably sums up Fox News, that they're not in the business of, of uh, quoting scientists on uh, asserting facts, uh, but they're mostly in the business of making up things that, that suit their whatever storyline uh, they're trying to push. Whatever political position they're trying to push. It's interesting that they, they use the word critics, uh, the critics have called. sounds like, you know, scientific critics. Really, the critics are the um, people who run Fox News and, the, and those right. that would deny the realities of climate change, uh, and, and they're, they're criticizing science, those critics. Uh, indeed, yes. No, it's, no it's, it's, it is a it is a circular argument because people like us question the data. Therefore, the data is questionable. <laughs> circular and uh, would be funny again if the consequences were not so severe. Uh, my inside story: uh, I was uh, asked to be on Hannity and Combs uh, television program and, and radio, but this is a television story uh, about uh, three years ago and two years ago for a total of about three appearances. And I was happy to debate Sean and Hannity, as I call him, because the facts are on our side, and uh, they wanted me to come on and you know quote defend Al Gore, which um, I really enjoyed. That I got, I guess, a little um, stronger and strident in my sparring with Sean Hannity because um, when I brought something up to the producer ahead of my appearance, she got very flustered, and after that appearance, they did not ask me back. And, and up to that point, I was sort of, you know, one of their regular, um, you know, green people that they would have on whenever um, Christopher. Uh, the uh, the doubter, what's his name? Um, drawing a blank on it. Chris Horner, who wrote the book on uh, the politically incorrect guide to environmentalism and climate change, uh, he would sit there and you know deny that climate science is real and and discredit Al Gore. So I came on to um, arm wrestle with him uh, verbally, and and the the, uh, the comment I made to the producer, and you know, I call you a couple of hours ahead, and and you've probably been on. Um, they ask you know, will you come on to talk about this and this? And then they say, well, what are you planning to say in regards to that? topic and i said well what I, what i want to ask is didn't sean hannity get the memo from rupert murdoch this was a couple of years ago saying let's give the planet the benefit of the doubt let's go easier on you know this climate change story and she said oh no no don't say that don't please don't say that so i realized that you know if you start getting your facts really straight and strong then they don't want you they just want you and they can beat you up and look like you know they they have the answers and you're just a, a deer caught in the headlights so you know, it's not surprising, but it, it's a first-hand story, first-person account that um, makes me not be surprised by these stories. Yeah, no, no question about it. In fact, they had me on a couple of times when there was a lot of snow <coughs> on the ground. I, but when it was, we were having these record heat waves in the spring and summer, um, 
uh, and these these record extreme events, well, they didn't. Then they weren't particularly interested in 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 talking. Right. A very selective uh, use of um, their commentators. And uh, let's let's get down to uh, Lumborg's uh, movie. It's it's been a real hit, right? Almost like an inconvenient truth. Or not really? Uh, no, <laughs> yeah, no, that's the, I think in the truth, one of the most successful documentaries of all time. Um, it grossed 25 million in the United States, which I think puts it in the top five, and another 25 million overseas, so a total of 50 million, uh, in, in, uh, uh, box office receipts for an inconvenient truth. Um, in its first month of relief, uh, Cool It by Bjorn Lomborg has grossed $62,000. That's an inconvenient truth. It probably doesn't want people to know about. Yeah. What, what happened there? I, 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 in your analysis, you see how he really couldn't have a very large audience given that he kind of straddles both sides and um, doesn't really you know, make sense. The more you listen to him, I don't understand him. I never have understood where he's coming from. What's he's coming from, you know, the way to get uh, success in, with the media is to be a contrarian. So he he pretends like he believes in global warming, uh, but then he says you can't do anything about it and we shouldn't even try. And, oh wait, there's technology. There should be more research and development right. on our, the part of our government for technology. With all those you know extra billions we have sitting around, and yes, technology is part of it, and the, and the move to clean tech. But you know, give up on everything else and, and hope that's going to work. I know it's 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 like you you it's like if you came to the to him if you were a doctor and you you came in with a cough and he diagnosed you as having early stage emphysema and he said well rather than quitting smoking I suggest we spend a lot of money on research into a cure for emphysema. Right. Uh, so, just like know, the tobacco it, industry successfully for almost 20 years said, well, the evidence is not conclusive, therefore we're not going to acknowledge that smoking causes cancer. And just like climate science, climate change, when the science is conclusive 100%, it'll be too late, way too late to do anything about it. Yeah, no, and it's... it's and we're almost there already. To it's, uh, and, and so, you know, the movie... Uh, 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 it just doesn't have a natural audience. Uh, and yeah, as I said in the blog, conservatives don't like the fact that he pretends to believe in global warming science, and progressives don't like the fact that he doesn't actually want to do anything about global warming except <laughs> attack the people who do. And, um, and speak at environmental conferences because he is such a strange contrarian. Yeah, and he's very telegenic. You know, he's he's very he's he's young and he's glib, uh, and uh, but. You know, fundamentally, he just has used this failed documentary to get coverage by the media and to publish these just dreadful uh, opinion pieces, which I, I, I debunked yet another one uh, on, on the blog. One could literally spend all your time just debunking stuff that Bjorn Lomborg says. Um, but uh, you know, it's good news that, that at least that, that the documentary has failed, and I I, I think that uh, it it does show some signs uh, that 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 uh, you know you can't fool all, uh, everybody all the time. Right. Um, when his his book came out, um, his publicist asked if he could come on the show several times, and my protest was to say no, I don't think so, and I don't do that very often. But he just confounds me, and I think complicates things, and. Again, it's rare for me not to have a chance to even, you know, challenge 
you know, someone with the questions, but, uh, I mean, Chris Horner was even on my show, and uh, Myron Ebel was on my program, yeah. but Bjorn, I don't know, I just, uh, I, I got... I got tired of him. I think I saw him speak at too many conferences and just uh, have people scratching their heads. Uh, not that legitimate confusion, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot that about, about climate change that is confusing, but I just think he, he cancels himself out somehow. Yeah, That's well, he's opinion. also, he's just very crafty and disingenuous. I mean, he's very knowledgeable. He just doesn't use that knowledge. Uh, he, you know, he, he uses that knowledge to... to uh, confuse people rather than right. just tell a, people the facts. Yeah, I felt manip- manipulated by his approach. I think that's what it was. That was the, the personal uh, reluctance. Okay, so we've got just a couple more minutes, Joe. Really appreciate your being with us uh, on short notice again, but I understand uh, another item on your blog that caught my attention is that the southwest uh, section of the United States could see a 60-year drought like that of the 12th century. I didn't even know we had record uh, you know, of, of weather going back that far, and it could be even hotter? Yeah, they used tree rings to figure out uh, uh, how much moisture there was. And it is a very basic prediction of, of climate science that we're going to see more severe droughts, and we're already seeing them in some regions. The southwest uh, has been, uh, in part or in whole, uh, you know, large parts of it have been in drought for many years, and, of course, Lake Mead is at a record low level. Um, so uh, there are a lot of studies that predict that uh, by, like, the 2040s, uh, the southwest could be in a permanent or near-permanent drought. And by drought, I mean, you know, levels of soil moisture that are lower than the country experienced during the uh, dust bowls uh, of the 1930s, except that only lasted, you know, seven, eight, nine years. This uh, could last many, many decades. And so what this particular study uh, from the University of Arizona did was to say, uh, let's look at the historical record, uh, the paleoclimate record, going back uh, a thousand years to see uh, what exactly is uh, has the Southwest experienced. And the answer is, in the 12th century, when it was... Uh, uh, not quite as warm as it is today, but but warmer than it had been over the past 2,000 years. It had there was a 60-year drought, and uh, so the, the you know the scientists basically said this is the kind of thing we can expect to happen again, uh, except it'll be instead of being a warm weather multi-decade drought, it'll be a hot weather drought, and as you can imagine, hot weather droughts are are worse than you know warm or even cool weather droughts because when it's hot uh it's water doesn't you know evaporates faster and and the general suffering that you have when you're hot and dry is is considerably higher and as they say water is going to become the next oil and um just very quickly while we're on the topic of water you've got a great repost on your blog today peter gleck the water expert of course talking about climate fraud and hypocrisy and point by point um just uh, laying out you know what's wrong with those who uh, would criticize climate science. I just want to end the interview um, besides thanking you, Joe, with uh, telling you what I'm working on with a couple of people here. We think it's time for a green tea party. I know lots of bloggers have called for that, but no one seems to be organizing it. It'll be for those of us who are steamed that climate change has been taken off the front burner. Maybe
maybe the back burner, and uh, we're steeping on it. So I want to know what you think of that idea. Is it time for uh, some of us to um, be as intense and passionate as the Tea Partiers have been? They're the party of no, and they want less taxes. We want less gases, and so forth. There you go. I know. I think it's a great idea. I think there's no question that, that one of the reasons why we didn't get a climate bill is because there it's viewed that, that we don't have single-issue voters, that exactly. you can always count on environmentalists to vote, uh, you know, for Democrats, and, uh, you know, that Republicans don't have to worry about them because they're never going to get that vote. So, yeah, we, and, and I think you, I hope you can get, you know, independents, and, and, you know, who care about the environment, uh, who care about clean air and clean water and, and their, and their future for their children. Uh, because that's what this is really all about. This should not be a political issue. And, of course, outside of Washington, D.C., uh, uh, Beltway, uh, you know, there's many Republicans like Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger and others who, who understand the dire nature. So I'm all for, you know, a, a, uh, a uh, grassroots movement. Great. Well, I'll send you a copy when we finish our proposal. And just so you know, among the ten things that we're going to tell people they can do to green their routine, and we're spelling that R-O-U-T-E-A-N-E, just to keep it kind of fun and light with a very serious message, is to vote for the greenest candidate, you know, of your choice, whether you're Republican or Democrat or Independent. Um, it's too important, this issue, and we've, you know, delayed too long. Mother Nature is not waiting till we get our act together and stop playing politics with the planet. So choose a knowledgeable, you know, representative that is on top of these challenges and is offering solutions or at least is open to them. And, and that's how we're hoping to, you know, get more believers, if you can say we believe in climate change or not, uh, in office. And, and that's really the point. And just to bring green back into the national conversation, it seems like it's slipped certainly action on it. So thanks for what you're doing, Joseph Rome, to keep it front and center. And uh, I tell everybody I know to read your blog. It's climateprogress.org. Thanks so much. And we'll talk to you again soon, I hope. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how to reduce your fork print, not just your footprint. Uh, there's a great new product, or at least it's new to me. It's called To Go Wear. I think you're going to want to hear about it right before we get into these um, very uh, consumptive holidays. Be right back. <laughs> 